Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room's second interview. Uh, today we have Shruti Mukherjee. Adam and I are really excited to have her on this program. Uh, she has, um, well, she is a PhD candidate in women's gender and sexuality studies. Uh, she's in her dissertation writing phase. Um, I can really relate to that right now. And um, I'm going to just introduce you right away, Shruti. So, you know, maybe first, where are you coming from with this broadcast? Uh, where are you located right now? Uh, I am living in Jersey City right now. So across the Hudson River from New York City. Very good. Okay. Well, as the Jersey guy, I'm really excited. Okay, um, and what are you studying right now? So maybe what is your research centering on? I am specifically studying militarization in Northeast India, and I'm looking at how activist lives get impacted by this history of militarization. Uh, I particularly work with some women's collectives who don't define themselves as an NGO or a human rights organization, but these are more community-based collectives, which came about uh, as a response to sustained state repression uh, in that region. So I'm studying how, uh, like all my dissertation chapters are looking at uh, different ways in which activists negotiate uh, their everyday life uh, under very, very, very heavy military, military presence. Uh, and there's a law in place in this region and in Kashmir, it's called the Armed Forces Special Powers Act. And this, this law takes away a lot of the democratic rights we as Indian citizens have, which we got through our constitution. So the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, uh, in a way, defines the governance in this region defines everything in this region, defines human interaction because there's an armed personnel standing every 500 feet with an AK-47 rifle. So you can imagine the way in which uh, the society has been structured with this very brutal history of militarization. So I'm looking at how do activists survive everyday lives and do their work uh, at the grassroots. Yeah, we have had um, a fair amount of news, even in this country from Kashmir, which mm -hmm. of course we never get and never pay attention to foreign news, but we do not, um, we don't have a lot of headlines from Manipur. Mm -hmm. So what are, um, what are some of the chapter headings, if you don't mind? Yeah, I'm looking, so yeah, I'm still playing with many of my chapter titles. One of them is, uh, I start with the last chapter, like before the conclusion, it's uh, it's called Love in the Times of AFSPA. That's how we refer to this uh, act. 
uh, it, it's looking at this, uh, I'm tracing this story of an activist. Her name is Irom Sharmila. She was on hunger strike for 15 years, uh, more than 15 years. She was uh, forcibly being fed through the nose by the Indian state because the Indian state argued that she's trying to commit suicide and that is something we cannot let you do. So she was under arrest in a hospital in Manipur and forced fed through uh, the nose. Uh, she did not eat a bite of food for 15 years. That's incredible. And uh, in the process of this, uh, she fell in love with someone and she ended up breaking her fast. She ended up getting married. Now she has two kids. And that led to a lot of backlash against her from activist progressive circles in the region. Uh, so I'm looking at what it means to even be this face of a movement. And when you are put on a pedestal and you call it quits. So I'm looking, I'm tracing her life history. I'm looking at uh, the decisions she made to break her fast where she did not see that the fast was this hunger strike, this fast was doing anything concrete. But there were a lot of uh, organizations which were supporting her. And uh, yeah, her breaking the fast became like a flashpoint in the movement. So I'm looking at what it means when the burden of an entire movement is on one person. Uh, and now she's moved out of the region. She no longer lives in Manipur. Uh, Irong Sharmila lives in the southern part of India now in a state called uh, Karnataka. And there have been a lot of uh, exchanges between her and her you know, colleagues, activists from before, which are not pleasant. Um, so, and we don't talk about these things so much when people quit and leave. So I'm looking at what it means to leave what it means to quit and what it means to fall in love when you are resisting militarization uh, for so many years. This is an incredible story. I mean, I can just already see a movie, like, you know, it playing out as a type of film. Um, wow. It's, I, I'm, I'm having trouble getting past the irony that the country that was founded by Gandhi and Bhagat Singh's suddenly anti-hunger strike. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, historically, Gandhi, yes, he did play a role in the anti-colonial movement, but there are a lot of critiques of Gandhi, which we don't read, especially outside India. Uh, and even within India, it's very difficult. Oh, no, I'm I'm not, I'm not saying he's a hero. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. Like I've, I've read, I've, I've read some of these critiques. I've, I read yeah. his exchange. Um, well, we can go into it another time. With B.R. Um, Ambedkar? Yes. Yes, yes. Um, no, I'm saying that because I don't think I'm surprised that this is happening in a place where Gandhi was. Uh, oh, no, I mean, hypocrisy is everywhere, and especially in politics. It's just, yeah. it, it's all the more frustrating. It is, it is, of course. But, like, I, I think I think in some ways you you have to you have to be frustrated by hypocrisy even though you know that it's there and mm -hmm. even though you know that every day you go through the news and say that's hypocritical that's hypocritical but mm -hmm. like 
Yeah. And yeah. then like some of the other chapter titles. Yeah, I can speak about one more chapter. I don't want to take yeah, a please. This is why we're here is yeah. to talk about it. Yeah, this is your space. Yeah, take it away. Yeah. So another chapter I'm writing is on uh, militarization and performance of widowhood. Uh, because of this history of militarization, there have been thousands of people who have been killed in what we call fake encounters in Manipur. These are people who were uh, later called insurgents, who were part of movements trying to break away from India. And uh, the group of women I work with, they are, they are the widows of the men who were killed by the army. And uh, I'm looking at what it means to be a widow in this space, because there are a lot of conversations around the idea of widowhood, which is not very uh, positive, so to speak. What it means to, for instance, raise a child being a single mother in a society, which is more or less like India is a patriarchal society. Uh, but what interests me or what what makes me feel very, very uh, moved by this women's collective is that at the face of this adversity, these are like women who are before their uh, family members were killed, were just going about their lives. They are not like trained activists. They did not get a degree in social work or they have no training in human rights uh, law. But right now they are fighting a case in Supreme Court uh, on 1528 encounter killings. And uh, they have mobilized the community and it's amazing the way in which they have collaborated, not just with uh, local activist lawyer groups, but even internationally, these are people who go to the UN, uh, give speeches, they are at the forefront of the movement. And there's a long history of anti-colonial women's movement in Manipur. So they draw historically a lot from that also. So I'm looking at, at what it means to be a widow because in, con in many conversations with my interlocutors during my ethnography, many of them said that, you know, even if we, we lost our husbands 15, 20 years back, many of us are in love with other people, but we cannot get married or even declare our love publicly because I'm this president of an organization, which is a widow's collective. If I get married, I lose that legitimacy in the community to do this work, right? So I'm looking at what it means to do widowhood every day uh, and deploy and live with that trauma, relive that trauma and talk about that trauma constantly because that is how, uh, yeah, that is how this work is being done. Very powerful work in the community. Oh yeah, I'm just blown away, Shruti. I mean, this the object of study that you have, it's not just one way, it's women, but also just these women's stories. I mean, these are real lived experiences. And maybe to go from that, like, right, you have, you had all of this activist background already before you came to Stony Brook. So what was it like once you landed in the land of uh, Long Island? Uh, you know, how did, was there a lot of shock or tension you felt like when you first came to the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department or, you know, what was your journey like? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think I'll backtrack a little bit uh, and say uh, that my object of study is really the Indian state okay. uh, and not women and uh, women's collective. So I'm studying the Indian state through the lens and perspective of uh, the women's movement in the region. And I think that is where the trouble started in the department for me. Okay. Because I was refusing to look at women as my object of study. And I was looking at these women's collectives as uh, co-theorists, co-authors in my dissertation. I was not going as someone in the field who was going to tell these women that, oh, this is how you should do your feminism. Or this is how I'm going to tell you how to talk about gender and sexuality. But I was actually learning from them how they are deploying their bodies, how they are deploying their emotions, uh, how they are deploying their very fascinating way of being uh, in resisting militarization in mm -hmm. the region. So yeah. I think that is where the trouble was because I was not being legible to the neoliberal American white feminism. Mm. And uh, I was refusing to do that labor of translating this. So, yeah, I think that is where the trouble ha has been for me as a yeah. PhD and at Stony Brook University. But it's quite fascinating because, you know, I remember in feminist theories, well, for those who are listening, I had the graduate certificate from mm -hmm. what, what in Shruti's department from women's gender sexuality studies. But like, I keep thinking of, uh, Jasper Puar's work, or Je even Jennifer Nash's work. I mean, Jasper Puar has terrorist assemblages, assemblages, um, and uh, Jennifer Nash looks at the black body, especially under um, systemic racism, but the mm -hmm. slavery exploitation system in America. But these are all anti-imperialistic critiques. But it's so interesting, like these authors have been propped up in feminist theories. But, you know, and you're doing that type of anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist work um, to look at, you know, what does militarization, how is it being resisted? Um, and there are these women's stories. So I guess I'm just really flabbergasted, might be the best word, with how that's not seen by certain faculty as, you know, maybe legible or it's not legible to them so you know it, it must feel there is a you know a frustration i'm sure you must feel uh yeah. from them i, I want to jump in i i think mm -hmm. i think that would that you're the we're we're always talking about the energy that brings a person to grad school and then the resistance that they find either getting through it or getting past it into whatever comes next and in your case, the both the energy and the obstacles seem particularly stark and in, in I might even say exaggerated. Um, but I think that it's a really wonderful distinction. People ask you, why are you a grad student? And you say, because mm -hmm. these small distinctions matter mm -hmm. and they're, they're worth fighting for. And, and so the, this, this small distinction you just saying, I'm not studying these women, I'm studying what these women study is, or I'm studying with these women mm -hmm. is, is, I mean, we've, it's humanizing. Mm -hmm. 
right? I mean, that's that's yes. the, that's the point at, uh, at last is that you're not you're not studying them because they're people. You're asking them questions. Yes, and I think that is something I've learned through studying feminist scholarship on doing research, and that's where my training comes from. Uh, but there are challenges to doing this work, like both of you are pointing out. And uh, like to going back to Andrew's earlier question that what was it like coming from my activist background in India? So I used to be a student union activist uh, in my uh, university days back in India. And uh, the student union- just, Sorry, just for context, where was that? I was at JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Got it. Uh, I was doing my MPhil uh, from JNU before I started my PhD at Stony Brook. And uh, the history of student activism in India is very different. I mean, here it's, I think that, that, that was my challenge because we were so used to being on the streets and working with other unions in collaboration with teachers union, with workers union on our university campus. Uh, so that work required a lot of us to put our bodies on the line. Uh, there was police brutality. There was a constant threat uh, to taking away your degree. And many of my friends and my uh, colleagues back in India have been in incarcerated. They have lost their degrees, but the resistance is also there. And that's where I saw a difference when I came to Stony Brook. Uh, the general environment in the university is so apolitical. It's very sanitized. Everybody is just working in their silos. There's no sense of community, so to speak. And uh, that was shocking for me, but it, I wasn't surprised uh, because I knew of other friends who had moved for their PhDs to the US. Uh, and they shared similar discomfort with you know, doing this work by yourself and it's so hard to make a community which takes a political stand, for instance. It's very difficult to do that at Stony Brook and I'm sure you both are very aware of that. Very isolating, right? Like the activism even can feel, well, this might speak to America broadly, but um, a lot of unions, they operate within their own activist circles. But now I think, you know, we're in a certain moment, a transition stage, if you want to call it that, of everything has been laid bare because of the pandemic, um, mm -hmm. seeing police brutality so visual with um, videos. But I mean, that's been mm -hmm. happening, but right, where people are paying attention a lot more now. Um, and that this resisting to police brutality even, I've just been reading more about I think, well, the current research, or not research, but articles show that 93%, um, it's interesting to me because most of the media, they keep harping on 93% of the US protests are peaceful. And I see that word peaceful keeps getting inserted in each article. And I think that speaks a lot to the American public's idea of what protesting, what it looks like even. Like they, like when people think of protesting, they always, we haven't seen this kind of outpouring of protesting on the streets in America mm -hmm. since, uh, I mean, 
there was Occupy Wall Street, but I don't remember the same kind of energy with Occupy Wall Street. Like this is a mm -hmm. turning point of mm -hmm. activism. But yeah, I mean, I think of course now it's starting to like, and your narrative speaks to this, it's coming to the university. I mean, the university is not gonna be free from looking at the skeletons of systemic racism. Like, you know, these questions need to be asked of the university and how can people who claim that they're activists, I would call yeah. it maybe a commodified activism, mm -hmm. a, a market type of activism, you know, that's very different than being out there and showing up for the communities that you say you speak to. And I mean, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to respond to all that I'm laying out here, but I mean, you know, maybe even mentally, how are you feeling right now with just, you know, your being where you are located within the university? I would say that, yeah, it, it is challenging being a grad student at this moment because uh, as somebody who is uh, writing her dissertation, there are always questions of next step. What am I going to do after I finish my degree? Mm -hmm. So it's also forcing me and many of my PhD colleagues across the US to have this conversation that what it means to be in academia at this moment and how do we go on from here? So it's also, though there are challenges, but I, I'm, very, I'm very happy I have a support system. I have a network of people I can rely on. Uh, and I think that has helped me sustain uh, through this time. And uh, though I, I, I want to quit every day, <laughs> like 10 times in a day, I think about quitting. Yeah, that's real. That's right. So, but but I, I get reminded by people around me that Shruti, you have to finish writing. You cannot quit so close to the finish line because, again, the realization that you know what I'm doing here in the university, it's not just to get a degree. I look at my dissertation as a, a site where I'm collaborating and producing knowledge with the women I work with. Mm -hmm. So my accountability lies to them. These are the people who opened their homes to me. They shared their intimate stories with me. They invited me into their homes to eat food with them, celebrate with them. So I cannot abandon that. I have an ethical responsibility to finish writing. Uh, so yeah, I think that gives me strength a little bit at this time when everything is falling apart and there is no sense of there's no sense of holding on to anything concrete. This, this realization that I'm not doing this work just for my degree, that gives me strength uh, at this moment in time. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really moved by that idea that, that it, it is the people around us that help us finish this work. Um, sometimes they help directly and sometimes they just mm -hmm. remind us why we're doing what we're doing um whether we're writing a dissertation about you know 400 year old poetry like i did or about something that's that's happening right now um and i i, I want you to i want you to elaborate a little bit more on that like talk, talk a little bit i mean you don't have to name names but talk a little bit more about your support group because that that is the thing above all that we want to help people to imagine and and 
more importantly, imagine doing for themselves if they aren't already, if they aren't effectively? Yeah, so there are many people in my support system. My partner, Apoor, who I live with, he literally like pays the rent and pays for my food. So he's keeping me alive. While it's I'm not nothing. So I, I really owe lot of my existence right now to him. He's, Did he move over with you? No, he came to the US a year before me uh, to do his master's. And uh, he is an engineer. He works as a data visualization and analyst. We are from very different fields. So that's interesting too. When really? I take a break from my work, I and I, when I talk to him, I'm in a different space. So it's a nice learning process, even for him and me, because he now speaks my language. When <laughs> talking to his friends and explaining to them uh, neoliberalism and, <laughs> and history of militarization and occupation. And I'm like, wow, dude, <laughs> you picked up a lot of things over the years. Good for him. Uh, yeah, so we, we have been together for many years. We uh, have been together since 2011. So he is like the one support system in the house right now, mm -hmm. uh, keeping me alive. And uh, then I owe a lot of my support to like my mother, because she's somebody who has fought from a very young age for me and my younger sister to pursue what we wanted to. Because in a lot of Indian middle class houses, the pressure is to become an engineer or a doctor. And yes. I want to do that and my mother fought for me fought against the family fought against my father uh, who was pressurizing me to enroll into an engineering college so and she keeps reminding me that you know you have to finish this we fought together so <laughs> you cannot give up and she keeps reminding me oh that I get all these opportunities and chances and you're getting them the guilt has to come in somehow right oh yes so that weighs down me a little bit but <laughs> very thankful that my mother reminds me that how much it also reminds me of this history of women in my family like my grandmother who could not study beyond high school my mother who has a postgraduate degree wanted to do research but could not so I'm also carrying this burden of women in my family who could not do what I'm doing so I, my grandmother is dead, but I do get haunted by her ghost sometimes when I'm, you know, not taking it very seriously. And she's like, you've got to finish this. So you identify very strongly with the woman who hunger struck for 15 years and then said, fuck it. Yeah, I do. Actually, I do. Yes. <laughs> but I get, yeah, I get reminded by these women in my family, my sister, my mother, that I have to finish. Um, what, what is your sister up to these days? She works with an NGO in a, a state called Rajasthan in Western India. And she works with uh, blind school students in public mm. schools. She works in collaboration also with the government of Rajasthan to implement some of the programs. So she also does a lot of grassroots work uh, mm. for her, uh, yeah, for her projects. Yeah, I just love that you're speaking to that the community you're most responsible to a is the women in Northeast India who you share space with they've or they've let you into their space right mm -hmm. and B it's your family and these are people who are outside you know the ivory tower so to speak they are um, 
Yeah. And I think that will really, it makes a lot of sense that you keep, because I, I do the same thing. I turn to those in my family and I always think about the LGBTQ youth mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. listen to my lectures. And those are the people who give me strength because, right, it's, they're, they're listening, right? They hear you. Like those women, they, they're opening up to you, Shruti. And I think that's the ethical obligation. You're right. It's a certain moral. Like I feel there's a moral responsibility yes. too. Like that's where mm -hmm. sometimes you can, you can extract yourself from the drama. Yes. The university drama, right? Because that can eat you alive. Absolutely. And again, like going back to that ethical, the point of ethical responsibility. I, I was born in an upper caste family in India. So I come with a lot of caste privilege because of which I can make these moves across borders. I've had access to English university education. So when I'm doing this work in Manipur, I'm working with women from indigenous communities who have been repressed by the Indian state for last 70, 72 years. So the part of the ethical responsibility also lies in me constantly recognizing that, you know, I'm working with a very stark power differential and I have to be very mindful of things like uh, appropriating voices and representation. That's a very uh, critical uh, thing to remember for me mm. and to remind myself that when I'm doing this work, it's not just to get a degree, but what responsibility do I have in representing or even beginning to represent? Because these women don't need my dissertation to do what they're doing, right? They, are, they have been, they have a fascinating and militant history of resisting the Indian state. So, you know, that's a humbling, that's a very humbling experience for me to just admit to myself that I am just like a small speck in their universe. And, uh, I'm not an expert who's going to tell them what to do with their lives. So, but the academic publishing community, I would say they would benefit a lot from your voice, right? Because I, I started to realize what we're writing. Um, maybe this is another light bulb moment. I feel like during this pandemic, there are moments where things are starting to line up, but um, mm -hmm. that like even just trying to explain that your analysis of the Indian state mm -hmm. and its militarization and how it's being resisted is a type of gender studies project mm -hmm. that that itself is revolutionary in its thinking to the Western Academy, mm -hmm. um, you know, shows a lot of the imperial blind spots. So I like, I can't wait to read that type of research. Like I'm ready to read yeah, your book right now because mm -hmm. It's, it's another person you're, you're accountable to. <laughs> yeah, you're accountable, you're accountable to Andrew. <laughs> you're accountable to me when I buy your book. Um, he'll, be, he'll be whispering you as you're, or as you're trying to sleep. Before the book happens, Andrew would like send me emails. Shruti, I need a draft. Yes. <laughs> but it is, no, but, but coming back to like, you know, the question Adam asked about, I want to like finish that line before I move on to this about my support system. Yeah, please. Uh, now. Please. Uh, so a lot of my support system is also apart from the people I've already mentioned uh, are also people who are doing PhD in other universities. And again, these are friends and even like at Stony Brook, these are specifically people who 
come from communities who do not have a lot of access. So these are not uh, white American people. And uh, over the years, I have formed a network with them and I call them my community of care uh. because when, you know, any one of us is, uh, and any one of us is facing anything. I know these are like some people I can just pick up my phone and call and I don't have to take an appointment and I don't have to wait for an email. So, you know, and that, that has taken a lot of years to build this community of care. Uh, I don't want to name anyone here because there are many people and I know people will get offended if I leave anyone out. <laughs> it's like the but, speech. Yes, but they are there. They are there and I know I can rely on them. And these are the people who I go to for advice when I have to make any big life-changing decisions about my research. I run, I, I talk to them, I debate about things. Uh, we, we kind of, yeah, do this all together. So I'm very proud of that, that, you know, despite all these challenges we face in a neoliberal university, there are also these communities of care who care what you do, who care, you know, about your well-being, who care that you finish your degree, who care you write, who, who would take out time to give you feedback. And it's not just like academic feedback, but generally like just reminding me that Shruti, you need to take a break from this. Just go off for a week and then come back and do this. So sometimes you need those kind of reminders, which you know probably are right, but uh, someone needs to tell you. Uh, I, I depend a lot on this uh, community of care, of which like my partner, my mother, sister, everybody is a part of. Does this community mm -hmm. of care, I'm just curious, I'll insert right a theoretical inquiry, but does this come from Bell Hooks's pedagogy um, literature? It does, it does. So when I read Bell Hooks and when some of my friends and I, we were talking about, you know, what is it that we can do to support each other when we know we have these challenges, we don't have, often we don't have supportive uh, com committees, we don't have enough funding to finish research, we don't have... Uh, we cannot go and do the field work we want to do because now there's the pandemic going on. So yes, it is something I draw from bell hooks. Uh, and this is the real lived experience. I love, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I love just when theory actually manifests itself. <laughs> like there are moments that it can, the bridge can be built. Um, how is your seminar work like, cause you did say in the beginning, there was certain research you were really turning to. Can you speak to maybe some of that research that you um, maybe aligned with what you're doing? Yeah, so I think the seminars which really helped me were particularly to do with, you know, introducing literature written by black and Latina feminists because I was also trying to make sense of, you know, being here in the US and how do I navigate this space? So that really helped me understand uh, what is it that I'm doing here, you know, as a PhD uh, student in the department. But I also ended up taking uh, a seminar at NYU through the inter-university doctoral consortium. Because again, like, <sighs> the department I'm at, it's not really geared towards like training me to study 
things outside the US so much. So I had to do a lot of work outside the prescribed seminars at my department to train my own self. Mm. It, it, it needed, it, it required that I do like independent studies, directed readings and go out there in some other university where there is a professor teaching. So at NYU, I was, uh, I took a seminar which was teaching about post-colonial India specifically. That was a very specific thing, uh, which I know I would never study at Stony Brook. Like nobody teaches that stuff. Uh, so I think that was one of the challenge for me uh, at grad seminars, trying to, so I was reading all these literature and all these ideas, but how do I make sense of that in my research mm-hmm. was my challenge. Like for instance, psychoanalysis doesn't really help me but I read a lot of psychoanalysis in feminist theory, right? Yeah. But I needed to read other kind of stuff. So it required that I do, uh, and I had to do a lot of work on my own outside the seminar hours. So yeah, I think that is where the challenge lies for me when I think of seminars mm-hmm. that's not really designed towards and I don't know if this is like to do with PhD programs in general, or this is something at Stony Brook, but I've heard these kind of concerns by other PhD students too. Mm-hmm. They have to put in a lot of extra work to do the kind of work they want to do. Yeah, exactly. If you don't want to follow the coattails, okay, mm-hmm. that sounds very harsh. I don't mean it to sound <laughs> that harsh, but if, if you're not going to do a cookie cutter like mm-hmm. I'm following what my advisor does. Yes. And I mean, like in the English department, it's definitely not the same analogy, mm-hmm. but even doing transatlantic work, like if you just want to mm-hmm. connect America to the British empire, isn't mm-hmm. done a lot. So like mm-hmm. when I connect Whitman to Wild, I mean, mm-hmm. I have a team of five people on my committee just mm-hmm. to like try to incorporate, this is the person who knows like how I'm using ancient Greek motifs. This is the Mm -hmm. person who knows queer theory. This is the person Mm -hmm. who knows wild. This is the person, (laughs) like, it's so interesting because I can just keep building this committee and eventually Mm -hmm. I'll have 15 people on it. Um, Mm -hmm. But you're right. I think especially, yeah, I don't, and I don't think it's Stony Brook specific. You're absolutely right. I took a course at Columbia Mm -hmm. in that same consortium program and Mm -hmm. I was seeing the same type of tensions there. I think, yeah, it's par for the course of graduate studies. Wait, what types of tensions? That um, you're not getting all the um, theoretical resources you need uh, within your own department. Like so you're, saying, you're saying that the Columbia students had similar complaints to the Stony Brook students? Yes, yes. Yeah, like they had to reach out to different departments yeah, okay. to gain mm-hmm. Right, which I think is inevitable just because of how it is. It is. These are all limited organizations. Yes, exactly. And um, like I know for a while I was being, I wouldn't say pushed, but there is a large eco criticism component in our English department. And I kept mm-hmm. getting asked, so are you going to do how, do you want to do some queer eco criticism reading? And I'm God. like, I'm like, wait, <laughs> how does this work with Whitman? <laughs> like, too right, many, eventually, too many nouns. yeah, and eventually there's like, I recognize the importance of a study, but like, where mm-hmm. are your boundaries? 
right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to start building your, uh, your circle. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I You'd think... have to get in a sixth uh, member of your group. Yeah, then I need the sixth, the eco-critic. To do transatlantic, <laughs> queer eco-criticism. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, but that's also Stony Brook, though, and maybe this speaks to your department, Trudy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. This is anecdotal on my end, but mm -hmm. I know that there is a large push to have international students come into the Women's Gender Sexuality Studies program. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, do you think that um, that push to have internet and I, you know, push meaning they want to have students who have post-colonial feminist ideology in whatever iteration that looks like, do you think that they're supported once they arrive? So Stony Brook in general institutionally does not support international students, though there is a huge presence of international students on campus. And I think yeah, that's it's institutional. It's a, it's a way to do their very aggressive marketing campaign far beyond and, you know. <laughs> well, they, wa they, want, they want to be able to charge the fees that international yes. students are willing to pay. We yes. have this, Andrew, I assume you taught the same sorts of classes that I did and, and had students in your class who were from elsewhere and were having trouble mm -hmm. um, yeah. writing in my writing essays and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, that's yeah. an ongoing concern. That's not yeah, but that's something even, we're familiar uh, with. Yeah. But even like in PhD programs, there's very less support. And I don't think it is just restricted to my department, but in general, international students who are doing PhD at Stony Brook do not have institutional support. Mm -hmm. And because the flashpoint was the recent ICE directive, which was threatening students like me on F1 visa with deportation, with the possibility of deportation. Yeah. And the way in which Stony Brook University responded to it, there was no response. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no concrete response, right? So that I think also trickles down to each department where though there is a huge presence of international students, but there is no institutional concrete support. Like when questions are being asked that what are you going to do if the ICE comes to our door to literally deport us? There's nothing, there's no response. Mm -hmm. And it's not good enough. Like we get told that uh, we have signed petitions, we have made calls and we have written to a number of people, but that does not do anything concrete, you know, for people who will literally get deported. Yeah. So these are symbolic measures. For exactly, real and life. these are empty, empty rhetoric. Dangerous. Uh, I mean, I sign petitions every day. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything beyond a point, right? Unless I'm also doing other things. Uh, right. It's like prayer in a way. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. So I don't see this as a. Yeah, so I, I don't see Stony Brook as a space which is very, as a university, which is very supportive of its international student community, uh, despite having a huge presence. And I, I definitely think the tenured professors can play a bigger role in holding the administration responsible, mm -hmm. them, holding them accountable yeah. for their inaction. But unfortunately, we don't see that. And there's a culture of, and this is in general, I don't want to name any names, 
but in general there is this culture of silence where you know you don't talk about these things and we get told that oh before you are till the time you're not tenured you don't like ask these uncomfortable questions but i see a lot of professors who have been tenured and they just go back into their bubbles well it's it's a this this is a this is an ongoing concern for every department mm -hmm. it's a decades long process to get tenured from the time that you decide that you want to be an academic and thus um, I mean, you were talking earlier about students who are risking expulsion mm -hmm. in order to protest, right? We, we have less of that uh, in this country, certainly in, in, in our university. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the thing is that, that you, you have this, this carrot dangling in front of you. Oh, when you're, when you're tenured, you can speak your mind, but mm -hmm. you're out of the habit by that point. So the time to speak is when is when it's is when it's a risk because if you wait until you're you know forty five, mm -hmm. then then maybe it'll be oh I can't speak because I have a mortgage and then eventually oh I can't speak because I'm dead. Well, it's like an apartment. And also, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say it's like mm -hmm. you know if you're in Manhattan and you got you're in this luxury apartment building and eventually you get entered into the penthouse like but then there's people who live you know below you literally like in a physical way and they're like but we want stabilization we want you know um equal housing um mm -hmm. you know is that person in the penthouse now going to i think they also see it as a way of well now you're taking away the privileges that they worked for and i think that's the issue yeah. this complaint I mean, the ones who do protest from the penthouse if they can do it effectually mm -hmm. good for them yeah. but the rest of us aren't holding our breath that's true yeah. and like going back to what adam said the carrot i think the carrot also keeps growing bigger eventually so once a person is tenured then there's the carrot of you know becoming a graduate program director or the chairperson or the dean, or eventually president of a university someday. So there is no end to this, right? So I've sure. also I've been recognizing over the years, like there are some professors who I really admire and I aspire to be like them if I if I can continue in academia after my PhD, who have risked a lot despite not having enough because they have a political stand. And I think that matters. Are you able to take a stand? Mm -hmm. Being apolitical and you know being neutral and being uh, resigning from reality uh, doesn't really help, and it it you're just helping yourself, nobody else. So I would be more happy if people who are tenured would just be upfront and say, you know, we don't give a shit. <laughs> Absolutely, we we you sh you should run courses for them. They can t they can teach you how to make how to make your notations in the margin and turn those into books and you can teach them how to get off their asses i i think that this would be a valuable exchange um but that that brings us to our next big point which is um so i don't know anybody else who's restructured their dissertation committee mm -hmm. well i know one person who had to drop a professor mm. you've done it twice yes mm -hmm. So at the risk of just asking you to shout expletives into the void, would you please 
tell us a little bit about your frustrations with your um, with your department, with your uh, mm -hmm. attempts to create a committee, with your attempts to get through this program? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there are a lot of complications with, as I'm sure you both are aware, uh, a lot of complications around restructuring committees. The first time around I had to do it was uh, because the professor I came in to work with uh, left. She was planning to leave all along, but I like specifically came into the department to work with her. So had I known she was going to leave, I would have never come to this department to begin with. Uh, I spent first three years of my graduate life just waiting for this professor to give me time, give me space, give me something, you know, where we were talking about my research. But since like later I found out she was planning to leave all along. So it explained a lot of, uh, lot of the uh, things which were going on in terms of, you know, I was not engaging with the professor because she would not give me appointments to meet her or she would like not respond to emails. So, you know, those kind of things. You were not her priority. I was not. Clearly, I was not. She was like on her way out. Uh, but yeah, that is what angered me a lot that why would a department give admission to an international student who is literally uprooting her life to come across uh, to work with somebody who is planning to leave all, yeah. a, all along. And even when, uh, so even knowing this was happening and because I was at the stage of finishing my graduate uh, course work, I didn't have a lot of time to think and breathe about this. So the next step was to, okay, now she's leaving. I need to have another advisor. So one of the professors on my committee, she took over from my ex-advisor. And then I invited another person from outside the department to join my committee. So that was my first round of reorganization. And uh, the trouble with this, this kind of reorganization was that, uh, like what I spoke about earlier, this culture of silence, that I was told to not talk about this to, with too many people. It was as if there was something wrong in reorganizing your committee. And again, I don't know how it works in other departments. In my department, they don't talk about the possibility that you might, and a lot of people have to reorganize their committees. It's a very normal thing to do. So I, I felt there was a lot of shame and stigma attached to reorganizing your committee as if it was your individual fault because of which you know this did not work out. Uh, and then the second time around, I'm reorganizing my committee now because one of the professors on my committee, uh, I found out through what we call whisper networks of PhD students that he has been abusing his position of power uh, in his department. And I was away in India doing my field work last year when all this was going down here. When I came back, I heard from different grad students and I could not sleep for many days thinking about how is this professor on my committee? Like, how can I go ahead taking feedback from him, knowing the kind of work I do, which is very, very political in nature. I cannot bear the thought of having this person on my committee. So I decided, okay, I need to, I need to reorganize my committee. And that cascaded 
into a spot where I am right now reorganizing my entire committee. So my entire old committee is out and I'm working with new people, new professors who very generously have agreed to join my committee. And again, remember these people, these new professors are, have been on the outside mentoring me all along. So it's not a surprise that they agreed to join my committee because they were invested in the work I was doing. So I'm very grateful to them. I'm very grateful that they saw this crisis for what it was and uh, how I would have dropped out if, you know, these professors did not support me at this time. So, yeah, so the second round of reorganization, uh, I've been doing it since uh, the summer semester. So it's been some months now uh, and I'm very close to declaring my new committee. But this, this, this required a lot of work on everybody's part. I had to spend a lot of weeks in meetings, talking to people, uh, just trying to demonstrate. It was like giving a job interview. <laughs> and I was like, give me that job already because I'm demonstrating to them how they are a good fit on my committee, how their expertise and area of work uh, helps me do my research. And, uh, but I'm very grateful that they all, they all stepped up. They all saw the crisis for what it was and they all saw the, yeah, they all recognize the problem in the university system, especially yeah. international students like me. And I guess just because this is like such on my mind and mm -hmm. as a question is, what were those weeks like within your own department? Because I'm sure you had to con you had to talk to the faculty who were on your old committee mm -hmm. and like do a type of transition um, of power in a way, like have, have you left on good terms? I mean, that's loaded, but do yeah. you feel like there's good terms now? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we, all get, we all get this sense in academia, right? That there's this fear of retribution constantly, especially if you are a grad student, you're not, you don't have a secure job, you know there will be retribution. So I'm yet to find out what that retribution will be. <laughs> So I'm sure, but uh, like the two professors I removed uh, from my committee, I just sent them an email saying, you know, you are no longer a good fit moving forward. My dissertation is taking a different turn and you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was like four lines in the email. Wow. And uh, they responded by saying that uh, one of them said, I'm very sorry, this, this is, uh, not working out for you and best of luck. And even the other professor, she was like, good luck with reorganizing your committee. And the third professor who I wanted, I wanted her to continue on my committee because I had been working with her since uh, the last six years. She just quit my committee when she found out uh, wow. that I'm and I'm bringing on other people. And that was something I was, I was not shocked by it. But I was surprised that at the end of this, it becomes about the tenured professor and the concern here is not supporting a grad student to finish her degree. So 
I had anticipated this, so I was already having conversations with a third professor to join my committee. Uh, but it was draining. It was definitely draining. But at the same time, I'm very glad to get this uh, out of my way because it was hampering my work right now in the writing stage. And as I was telling you, the work I do requires that I consume and study lot of state violence and it has an effect on you know the way of being uh, it's a difficult research it's not easy to do this work and if I don't have a supportive community committee I don't know how I was going to even finish I, I mean I'm, I'm like I don't know what I was thinking because this crisis also showed me that I don't have any support from my whole committee mm. like they care beyond a point, what I do or what I write. But how much it affects your psyche? I think this is so interesting that you just said that, Shruti, because mm -hmm. what we research, what we consume, mm -hmm. takes a toll, mm -hmm. but also you consume yeah, it's always those personal. narratives. But it's also the way that, um, this is where I see our work as theatrical, because mm -hmm. if you're an actor, you take on you take on that performance. It's not mm -hmm. like, you know, like, yes, it's fictional, but it's not fictional for the body all the time. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you actually, you know, you don't know how it's going to manifest itself. I mean, I'm not saying like we're, you know, like necessarily you're transported into mm -hmm. um, uh, a certain character, but yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that with the psyche. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, yeah, yeah, I no, I mean, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, the kind of work I do, like, again, this is not something, I, I'm not the first person who's doing this work. So I don't want to be this, uh, yeah, even say that this is only happening to me. But there are a lot of people in my field who study state violence, who study, who have lived through persecution. Uh, and who write about it and engage with it constantly, they have learned from them how to be very aware of the kind of effects this kind of research has on the body. Mm -hmm. So I remember like there are, there have been moments in my life where after reading or after listening to stories of women I work with, I dreamt about those things and I was so terrified. Yeah, I felt it was happening to me, but I'm very aware this is not something happening to me. It will not even happen to me because in the space where I work, I am the privileged Indian citizen who will not be shot by the army because that army is on, like they are the ones who are apparently protecting the Indian state and I am an Indian citizen, right? So I'm very aware of my privilege here, that this is not me, this is not my experience. But at the same time, just listening and reading and hearing these stories of loss, these stories of death, uh, brutal killings, extrajudicial killings, disappearances, like a lot of young people get uh, kidnapped by the state forces and they never return home. it does something to what you were saying to the psyche, right? It, it makes me also very aware of 
the comfort of my home and the fact that i have a partner who's there to support me uh and i work i work with a community of women who are widows and who are widowed at a very young age uh in their early 20s so it always it, it it's like a cycle uh where these experiences experiences and these uh emotions and these thoughts they are kind of moving across mm-hmm. body right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not something like it's very difficult sometimes to just draw the line though i i've also been told and i have learned from doing this work that sometimes it's important to recognize that it's not happening to me uh you know it's it's not nobody's coming to attack me in my home nobody's going to drag me out but i've had nightmares of that kind mm. where a mob people break into the house and they drag me out and kill me mm. right so yeah it, it takes a toll it takes a toll yeah and it's and you know like i am um, just finished definitely not the same balance of what you're talking about but i just finished the haunting of hill house which i'm really mm. i'm really into horror and terror as a genre but for mm-hmm. some reason seeing these paranormal mm-hmm. um the storyline and it's really i mean you have to be in the right space so i'll, I'll preface that preface it by saying that i think especially now like to put yourself in a viewing space where you're constantly seeing apparitions and just trauma. It's all about trauma and grief, working through trauma and grief. Mm-hmm. And I think I turn to it right now because there's so much grief that hasn't been worked through collectively. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all really living through a stage stages of grief right now mm-hmm. and maybe not everyone's voicing it that mm-hmm. um you know what you're even saying that's so much like to put yourself in that position mm-hmm. uh reminds me of when i listen to um actor roundtables and they discuss their profession and some mm-hmm. say like i didn't i didn't choose that story line or i didn't choose that script because that character is going through such an emotional turmoil and it mm-hmm. might even be like a mental health uh situation that they knew that they were going to align themselves so closely with that narrative that mm-hmm. it's it's going to be hard to rise up from that and yeah 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 and it, it's fascinating like the ways in which our research takes us to like places mm-hmm. i'll just share, like an anecdote from my field work last year uh so in manipur the government imposes curfews very often to squash the protests mm. and there's a curfew you cannot like go out and you cannot there are lot of restrictions on movement so that was also very much a part of my field work there were days there were weeks when i could not step out of the house which i had rented a room in uh, and the window became a place through which i was just looking out there's nothing to do i was all alone by myself and i remember there were like these cats in the neighborhood who would like just sleep wherever on rooftops and i was like yeah 
your life is amazing. You can That's be up life. and just, you know, sunbathe and jump around from one roof to another. Right? Being a stray in an Indian city is actually my career goal. <laughs> I don't know. I see there's swans that are around me in the Long Island. No, 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 no. But, but this, like this, is a di- this is a different circumstance. If you, if you go to like Bombay or Bangalore, okay. they have these dogs that just hang out until people feed them cookies. Okay, I don't and have. I don't, yeah. I don't know. What I, I would do that. I would be great uh-huh. at that. So you want to be? <laughs> want to be the stray dog that gets fed cookies? I would. I, I absolutely would. And don't you dare squash my my career goals. <laughs> I recommend that you be a stray in a university campus because that that's where you will get the most Ooh. food and attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and I everybody could, I could cares. Like, I'm probably sit a, better on a professor's guy. lap and read whatever they're reading. It would be great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we had like some stray dogs who would come into the classroom and just hop onto a chair and just take a nap. Yeah, I think I know that guy. Wow. <laughs> That's the life. <laughs> well, I guess maybe to conclude, well, mm-hmm. I know we're going to end on an optimistic level just because you're you know, you formed this committee that works for you. You have a community of care. Like you've, you've had to make your own pathway just because mm-hmm. of circumstances. But mm-hmm. you know the saying, you don't want to meet your heroes um, because they'll disappoint you. Like, do you think that, it doesn't seem like you ever kind of had a hero complex though, where you held the faculty, because I think some grad students, and it makes sense because we start to like take on this familial energy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like it doesn't seem though that you ever put all your eggs in one basket. Like this is my hero. Absolutely not. I never, thankfully I never kind of succumbed to that. uh, And that I'm glad I did not. Because I also see professors as like, yeah, they are human beings after all. They will make mistakes. Sure. And it, 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 it makes no sense to put our faculty on a pedestal. And it's important to recognize, for me at least, it was very important to recognize that there are limits to what they can do. Uh, and it's okay to look for help or support outside. Mm-hmm. Wait, I want to take a step back because, I mean, um, you were talking about something very serious you were talking about the curfews in manipur and i mm-hmm. i made that into a joke which i defend my 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 right to do but it's it's like it it sounded like you were going somewhere with that and i don't want to i don't want that to be dropped oh yeah yes no i was like telling uh, andrew that you know it's fascinating that to see now when i'm like not doing my field work the places i went um during my ethnography, so during the curfew, like I said, there was a lot of restriction on the movement. And uh, so a lot of the people I had planned to interview did not happen. Yeah. So I was, I was very, I was getting very uh, agitated that I had, I had this plan and I came with a research plan. I was supposed to interview these many people and that's not working out right now because Mm -hmm. curfew, right? So that also showed me the limits of this research design, which we spend years coming up with, we train for it, we do our coursework for it, uh, and it just, it can get tossed out of the window because of a government policy, right? Yeah. And, 
and it pushed me to think about my research beyond just doing traditional interviewing i ended up uh, doing a lot of archival research which i had not planned to do at all during my pre field work training as a phd student and during this this phase of archival research i was reading so this was not strictly like state archives but i was doing archival research at an at a human rights uh, lawyers office and i don't know i think i did mention so the women i work with they are fighting a supreme court case of 1528 encounter killings in manipur and this is a human rights group which helps them file the cases mm. so i knew these people from before because i have been going to manipur uh, like this was not the first time i was there so these are like part of my friends network who are helping me do this research and during this archival research i was reading files of people who have been killed right so there are like all these files in their office and these people were very generous to let me read the files uh they were generous to let me even like scan it for my own research and each file had like though it was like this official document which had like the police report and the eyewitness report and the post mortem report it it was a story of a person who died right yeah. so i in this phase of this curfew where i was not able to move around a lot but i was able to go to this one office i ended up reading files of 60 people uh and those stories are like somebody's universe right when a person dies so many things change hmm. and i was trying to understand like what am i at that moment i did not know what am i going to like i'm reading these files but what does this mean like why am i reading this and reading post mortem reports which were describing how a person was killed uh those were haunting me later not at that moment but uh, when i was writing my field notes i was rethinking about what this means uh it's a trauma i mean it is it is so trauma. i ended up yes uh yes definitely and uh but like again speaking to this this fascination of doing research where you don't know what what's going to happen next i ended up collaborating with a group of people to write for a special issue in a, a journal called bearing witness so they were looking for articles which were talking about secondary trauma mm. especially in terms of uh, you know people who work with communities who have been under persecution and have been traumatized so while i was doing my field work i ended up writing this article and it got published last year it just happened it was not something i planned it was not something i was not planning to write for a peer reviewed journal while doing my field work but it took me to places like the scofew though it seemed very debilitating at that moment because i had to spend weeks thinking about what am i going to do if i can't move around right uh but it also opened up spaces to maybe look at my research through some other way and i'm glad i did that though it was very traumatizing to read stories of people who were killed but now that's becoming a chapter a chapter or two in my dissertation and this is not something i planned before i went to manipur wow it's exciting well i mean the unplanned aspect is exciting what you yeah. had to bear witness to 
it's difficult to work through. I mean, it is. It, it does. It shows you the that psychological toll that. But again, that you you brought those voices out though too. So, I mean, you've borne you've uh, borne witness to those mm -hmm. voices. So that's yeah, exciting for the research, definitely. It is, and that's how I've, I've been seeing myself as a researcher, that maybe my work is to bear witness and record this history, mm -hmm. this injustice of this uh, very brutal state repression, because these need to be recorded. These, maybe that's my part in the game. Yeah. Well, you found, your, you found the piece you play, right? That, mm -hmm. And it's so meaningful, like you have communities who are, mm -hmm. that you rely on, they ha are in conversation with you, but I just love that like we can end on a note of mm -hmm. how you've made, like you found the meaningful work and it didn't, it doesn't have to rely on bureaucratic institutionality mm -hmm. in any way. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, you don't have to rely on like only this faculty member and this faculty member are going to get me from point A to point B. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of merit in looking at our work beyond the university system because there's a big world out there. Mm -hmm. And I think I, what I was talking about earlier that I, I am more responsible and I'm, I'm accountable to the people I work with in Manipur mm -hmm. than uh, faculty at Stony Brook. I'm having trouble being comfortable with ending on a positive note. I mean, to me, the, the takeaway is that you had an advisor who was abusive towards their students mm -hmm. and the professors of a women's studies department mm -hmm. took the part of that advisor over those students. I mean, we talk, we talk all the time about how a, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, a not-for-profit group that doesn't live its values is going to run into trouble uh, supporting those values, mm -hmm. right? If if you're if you're abusive towards your workers, then you're not going to be able to fight for labor rights or constitutional rights of any stripe. Mm -hmm. um, and this, to me, is the is the is the challenge. I'm so proud of you and so proud to to be interviewing you that you lived your values in this instance but it it's and and every everything that you've said is is such a clarion call to other graduate students um to to well to people to people like andrew who haven't finished to people like me who have finished and are mm -hmm. and are trying to um take the next step Mm-hmm. But it's also, I really, I mean, I really hope that there are professors listening to this. And I really hope that there are people who are related to professors listening to this. And I hope that, mm -hmm. that there are people who say, yeah, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. What happened, what happened to Shruti in this department is not okay. What happened to a lot of people like her is not okay. And it happens all the time. Um, and yeah, it's scary. It feels like you're risking your entire life for something that, that may not change, that probably won't change, right? I mean, it feels like you're, you're risking something very concrete 
for an objective that is very nebulous, um, which in some ways is the thing that you sign up for when you become a graduate student. But in other ways, it's, it's different because at least, um, at least there is a concrete goal when, you're, when you become a graduate student, or there is one of several concrete goals. And you don't sign up for your department to turn its back on you. You really don't. No. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the atrocity here. I mean, mm -hmm. like if I had to draw what's the moral of the story, mm -hmm. it's the hypocrisy. I mean, it is. Like, I think, Adam, I'm glad you did mm -hmm. bring this up because, like, if we're going to bear witness mm -hmm. to even your situation, Trudy, mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. academics who say that they're, just because you might say that you're, you know, doing a certain type of research mm. that they're right. supporting this, a system of abuse. Right, Everybody's li everybody can be liberal on paper. That's true, they could true, be liberal true. in their writing. Right. I think I've been able to navigate this because I realized that there is a difference in what we get taught in the class and what gets practiced on the ground. So people might teach bell hooks and Angela Davis in their classes, but what does it really mean when you know you are the one in position of power and you have to address a conflict, let's say, with a grad student? What do you do at yeah. that point? Do you just get up and leave because she's reorganizing her committee and you know you don't like <laughs> it? Or what do you do? Do you engage with the student? Do you so those are the questions I think many of us, and I, again, I don't think I'm the only one who is uh, sort of talking about this. There are a lot of grad students who are increasingly, especially with the Me Too movement in academia, are talking about this mm. risking everything right now, uh, risking their futures, their jobs, their sphere of retribution. So I think I get a lot of strength from that when I'm looking at other grad students who are able to hold their ground and ask these difficult questions mm -hmm. in academia. And I think it speaks to the larger, like specifically in my field, because women's studies historically in the US has seen itself, or at least like postures that it is different from other departments. You know, there is uh, this ethical, moral, feminist value in having a women's studies department. So, it speaks to that, that challenges of institutionalizing women's studies. I think that it, the radical aspect of doing revolutionary feminist work, I think that doesn't exist. I'm yet to see a women's studies department which is doing, is practicing radical feminist politics. Yeah, um, and it can't because of the mm -hmm. cor corporatization of the university. Yes. Right, because if you're actually doing the radical work, mm -hmm. you're probably not in that bureaucracy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like they're, but again, I think, yeah, it's helpful that you explain, Shruti, just that you found, well, even those on your committee now, it's, it seems like they're just very good allies to have. They are, and again, they are people who were in similar position like me. They are mm. not, uh, they are not, you know, your, what we understand as the norm in academia. So they themselves have had to face and 
still face despite being tenured professors lot of challenge and lot of resistance uh, because they are doing some meaningful work to make space and i am very grateful that there are people ahead of me who have made some space so i can do this what i am doing right now so i also recognize that there are people in academia who are making space for people like me well like i think that's a good ending <laughs> okay uh, thank you so much shruti i agree thank you thank you andrew and adam for inviting me to talk to both of you this was really fun just having this conversation about yeah academia. and thank you shruti mukherjee for joining us on the ivory tower boiler room um i learned so much i mean we've talked before and i still learned so much so thank you so thank you for opening your research to us opening your struggles to us and i hope that i hope that people listen to this i hope people learn a little bit about what your situation is and how it how you as you said as you've said i mean there are lots of people going through this circumstance um there are lots of people from other countries who have dealings with ice there are lots of people mm -hmm. from other countries whose parents wanted them to be a different kind of doctor shall we say mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so it's 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 such a pleasure to to get to to hear about the energy that brought you here and about some of the things that you've had to deal with along the way yeah and i really hope like adam well thank you shruti and those listening you know how how are you ethically and morally showing up that's what i am questioning now like what it, yeah. what it, what are what am i willing to put on the line and um yeah you yeah have us all questioning that so thank you so much and uh to our Absolutely. listeners uh we'll look forward to you hearing our third interviewee who we don't know who it is yet but it's going to be a promising person